0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon in connection with Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism is taken from Psalm 119, the verses 129 to 144. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous, they are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, let's now turn to Lords A34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, or your manservant or maidservant or your animals or the alien or stranger within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor." How are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God. Trust in him alone. Submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, today there are many interesting inventions out there. You may have come across e-readers and iPads, Android or iPhones. You may have come across and may even own an Xbox, perhaps even a Roomba. Of course, you might wonder, what's a Roomba? it's an automatic vacuum cleaner which you can program to your heart's content however one of my favorite inventions is the gps short form for global positioning system you may know it's a little box sometimes called a tom tom or a garmin a little box with a display that you put on the dash for example of your car You type in the address, and it leads you to the right place. And the result is you never need to get lost ever again. And as much as you think about it, this really is a time saver. After all, you don't have to buy, much less read a map. You don't have to stop and ask for directions, as if any man ever does that anyway. There's no need to be late for anything. So it's a time saver. It's also a gas saver. You know what happens if you get lost and you're stubborn. You drive and you drive and you drive. And maybe, just maybe, you finally get there. At almost $4 a gallon, that's a very expensive exercise. Whereas, if you have a GPS, you plunk in the address, you listen to the lady... And away you go. Finally, I might also add that a GPS is a marriage saver, in addition to being a time and gas saver. Husbands and wives go on a trip. It doesn't always work out as it should. He's driving. She's navigating. And it would appear that rare is the couple who can drive and navigate in harmony. Many a marriage has been sorely tested when husbands drive and wives navigate. Well, the GPS is the answer to all of that. It gives you your own built-in guidance system. It tells you how you can safely and surely and perhaps also happily go from A to B. Now, think about it. Think about that analogy, a GPS. Isn't that comparable to God's law? I would say to you this afternoon, the law really is God's guidance system for his covenant people. It tells you where to go or not to go. When to turn, not to turn. How far to travel. And... If you listen to it faithfully, it brings you safely to your destination. And so I I preached to you this afternoon on the theme, Life's Best Roadmap, or, if you will, the law as God's GPS. And you need to find it, and you should love it, and you should learn to use it. Now, beloved, before explaining why the Catechism opts for the GPS of the Ten Commandments, it may be good to remind ourselves that there are different approaches to life and to finding your way in life. For one, there are any number of people out there who do not bother with any kind of GPS at all. These people literally drive by the seat of their pants. They live for the day. They seek to maximize life's thrills and pleasures without any form of guidance whatsoever. They they do whatever comes to mind without much thought, and and as such, they don't plan for the future. They let events and people overtake them. They do not have any particular standard in mind when it comes to looking for a spouse. Whoever comes along and sweeps them off their feet will surely do. They do not have any kind of specific moral code to live by. Now, whatever feels good, looks good, will also do. They also don't have any really defined goals. They just kind of go with the flow. And they also have no views about God. Surely not about God or the afterlife. They're far too busy having fun today to worry about Tomorrow. Believe it or not, beloved, many, many people live that way today. They really live mindless, thoughtless, and in a way senseless lives. They live blindly, they live directionless lives, they live solely for themselves and purely for pleasure. Yes, and I dare say that their numbers are growing by leaps and bounds in our materialistic and secularized Western society. Of course, it has to be said at the same time that these people are not the only ones out there. There are also others who do have some kind of a standard and do use some sort of GPS, you might say, uh, there, for example, their map for life, their GPS, may be called loving others, being considerate and kind. Or it may be called the reflections following the reflections of Buddha or the teachings of Confucius. Or it may be listening to the writings and reading the writings of Chairman Mao and Chairman Fidel. The point is that many people also go by something. And someone outside of themselves... They have some kind of a mapping system, you might say. But I dare say, I dare say they do not have the real, true mapping system. They do not have God's law or GPS. If you think of it, look at the writer of Psalm 119 who writes the longest chapter in the Bible. And really, if you think of it, what is this chapter all about? But it's all about God's GPS. And about how eternal, enduring, delightful, preserving, boundless, lovely, wise, insightful, sweet, life-giving, and awe-inspiring it is. You see, as far as the ancient writer of the Psalms is concerned, there is nothing in this world or in this life that compares or that can hold a candle to God's law, to God's GPS. Now, of course, you also need to understand that the word law is sometimes used broadly and widely. In one sense, when Scripture uses the word law, it really kind of encapsulates everything. All that God has revealed, everything that he communicates, all that is found in the Bible. However, in a more specific sense, the psalmist means especially God's moral laws. He means the kind of instructions that you, for example, get in the book of Proverbs. Instructions about life and love, and sex, and relationship, and money, and speech, and above all wisdom. And of course, sometimes, and in particular, that word law, zeroes in on the Ten Commandments that we read together this morning. You might say more than anything else, when it comes to this concept of law, the Ten Commandments capture the law of God, the GPS of God, in a nutshell, in a kernel. It's all there in very few words. How to relate properly to God. How to get along properly with your neighbor? Well, and our Lord Jesus Christ would surely agree. For example, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't take long to to realize that actually the, the Sermon on the Mount is the commentary of our Lord Jesus Christ on much of the Ten Commandments. I think, too, of what he says to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Or as well about all the kinds of comments that are dispersed throughout the Scriptures. Put them all together and you cannot fail to to see that the Lord Jesus Christ as well says that the Ten Commandments stand head and shoulders above all other guidance systems out there. This really is the best guide, the best teacher, the best source of wisdom and understanding that you can find anywhere. And you know, the Apostle Paul would concur. You only need to read his letter to the Romans. For example, Romans 3. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. We uphold the law. Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known sin except through the law. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. You see, beloved, if you take these testimonies of the psalmist in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament of the Apostle Paul... And if you add to them the testimonies of Peter and John, it's really a case of no contest. Together, they affirm that there is no better GPS than these ten commandments of God's law. You need to recognize them. And as the psalmist very clearly does. You need to love it. Now I realize when it comes to loving the law, there are still doubters out there. You may have heard of a man by the name of John Darby. He lived a couple of centuries ago. He's the founder, so called, of the Plymouth Brethren, and he, he's also the creator of a theological system called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is a system of reading and interpreting the Bible, which, which really divides it up into seven different dispensations, each having their own internal law of functioning. It's been popularized in what's called the Schofield Study Bible. Well, this man by the name of Darby, who's often regarded as the father of dispensationalism, is also what is called an antinomian. And you perhaps know what that means. Anti is against. Nomian comes from the Greek word nomos for law, so against the law. Darby saw the law as something purely and simply negative. And he loved to contrast the law and the spirit. God's GPS and the spirit. And he's not alone in this. But is his approach justified? Should we say, well, we are New Testament Christians, and as New Testament Christians, we can just forget about anything and everything that has to do with law? Beloved, if you take that approach, you take a very simplistic approach to Scripture, and you don't really understand how the word law functions and works itself out in the Scriptures. Well, and then, of course, it's true. Sometimes, sometimes the law has a very negative function. As, for example, when the law is given to reveal and uncover your sin and your trespass. But you also need to realize that in other cases, the law is so often positive, constructive, a building. And if you want a classic example of the positive face of the law of God then you have to look closely. Look closely, for example, at the Ten Commandments. Some people don't like the Ten Commandments. They wish we'd stop reading them in the morning worship service. They'd like that we eradicate them altogether. But you know, if that's your attitude, it's probably because you have a reading problem. You're not reading the Ten Commandments in their context, in their real setting. You're making an artificial separation. Because really, where do the Ten Commandments begin? They don't begin with the first commandment. They begin with the introduction, with the preface. And what's the preface all about? Have you ever looked at it closely? First of all, the preface is about the Lord himself. I am the Lord. That's how it opens. That's how God comes to his people and introduces himself and he says, I am the Lord. I am the God of the covenant. And after making that mighty declaration, he builds a bridge. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. Believe it or not, I don't just live in splendid isolation. I don't live unmoved, unperturbed, undisturbed by what goes on upon this earth. I am the Lord, your God. You belong to me. I belong to you. But that's not all. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What does that tell you? I am the Lord your God, and I saw you down there in your misery, in your tears, and in your suffering. I saw what the Egyptians were doing to you. I saw them turn you into a a slave people. Take away your rights and your privileges and make your life utterly and terribly miserable. I saw that, and I brought you out of there. I liberated you. I used my mighty power to set you free. As the Lord used his power to set us free. And the Lord also uses his power, you can say, to keep us free. Because now what follows after this mighty introduction is, you shall have no other gods before me and all the rest. What are they? These are the ten laws of your freedom. The ten commandments of how to live in liberty. This is the secret to a sound, integral, balanced, wholesome, happy life. You know what it's like to live in slavery. The Egyptians showed you that. Well, I'm going to show you what it's like to live in joy and liberty. And it begins, no other gods before me. And so, beloved, we're reminded... Not only to recognize this law, but as I said earlier, to love it. It's just something astounding that that the great creator God of heaven and earth is is, is so concerned with us and how we live that he bothers to set out these fundamental rules of life and liberty. And then, of course, when it comes to all of those laws of liberty, a 34 also includes the first commandment. It's interesting that this first commandment is first, and you might also say it's, it's foremost. And if you wonder why there is this kind of order, well, there is a reason and there is a plan to it, as you will see as you go further into the commandments. But... The reason why this commandment is first and foremost is because this commandment starts at the very beginning, at the foundation of it all. As one commentator has put it, it takes us straight to the Lord God, the source and the center of everything. And in so doing, it sets the stage for all the rest. Or you might even want to say that this particular opening commandment gives you your starting point, your your perspective, your vista over all the other laws of liberty. Some years ago, I happened to be in Shanghai and I was given a free ride to the top of what they call the Oriental Pearl Tower. You go up one elevator and another elevator and another elevator. And then you get up to the top and you're somewhere around 1,200 feet above the ground. And when you look down, you get this marvelous vista. You see all the buildings and the roads, all the topography, how everything fits. You know, when you're down on the ground, you don't see much. But when you're above it. You see a lot. And in some ways, that first commandment is like that. Because if I'm out of this particular perspective, everything else flows and, and fits together. And, and if you ask what kind of a perspective is it, well, it's a perspective that's, that's anchored notice in the person of our God. And how we are to relate to him. This commandment says, you know, if you want to travel safely and securely through life using God's GPS, then this is where you need to begin. And if you want the same for your children, this is what you teach them. First things first, you shall have no other gods before you and before me. And, of course, you can take that and you can translate it differently. There shall be no other gods, or you shall have no other gods over against me. You shall have no other gods before my face is a rather literal translation. You shall not have any other gods between you and me. God is showing himself here to be a jealous God. I want to be number one in your life. Always. Some people say that's a bit negative. Why should we avoid and distance ourselves from all other gods? But you know, if you think of it, this this is an invitation. A glorious invitation on the part of God to embrace the only true God of the universe. You know, here the, the God of creation, the God of the patriarchs, the God of the exodus and of the remnant, the God of Christmas and Good Friday and of Easter, says, I will be your God. I'll be your only God. And you'll be my only people. He invites us to find our life, our salvation, our happiness, our joy, our purpose in him, and not anywhere else. And beloved, if you think of it, isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ did time and time again? When Satan finished tempting him, where did he seek refuge? When the Jewish rulers attacked him, where did he go? When the crowds tried to derail his divine plan, what did he do? He turned away from them all. And he knew that having God the Father at the heart and the center of his life. Is really all that counts. You might even say it's more than enough. Why did he always seek to do his will? Why did he always call on him? Why does he obey all of his laws? Why is he always seeking his glory? Because God is his greatest treasure. There isn't anyone else like him. There isn't anyone else. The catechism summarizing oodles of scripture passages says there isn't anyone else who's so good and true and right and just and powerful and merciful and good and dependable and righteous. as our God. So why in the world would you look anywhere else? Why go shopping for another GPS system? And of course, that's a question, isn't it? People in this life are always shopping. Shopping for something better. It's hard to be content, you know. The Israelites... They get liberated from Egypt and they go into Canaan. And before you know it, they're ambushed by Baal. And you know, Baal worship really was nothing more than an ancient form of health and wealth gospel that we hear today from the likes of Benny Hinn and others. It's the kind of gospel which says, pray to me and I'll make your crops grow and your barns full. And besides that, what else was Baal worship than a religion of excitement and kicks? Visit my sacred prostitutes and get in touch with your real feelings. And that happens so often. The Israelites were not the only ones who always thought their religious grass was greener on the other side of the fence. And so often that emerges today as well. We have everything we need in this one great, wonderful, mysterious God and covenant father. And yet, for some people, he's never enough. They want more, more gods, more idols. Beloved polytheism isn't dead. Polytheism isn't confined to the jungles of and Yahya, or what have you. Polytheism is alive and well and living in our neighborhoods. The false gods today are everywhere. Pleasure, health, career, money, power, reputation, influence... You name it. They're everywhere. They take many shapes and forms. And if you want to discover the one that most entices you, you only need to ask the following questions. To what do I give my most profound respect? For what and who do I sacrifice my time, my money, and my efforts? Who or what is at the center of my life giving me meaning, purpose, and direction? What or who truly motivates me, inspires me, excites me, awes me? What or who catches my attention? And what or who defines my values and my outlook on life? Where, to whom, and to what do I look for healing, salvation, and freedom? You know, you answer those questions and you have your God. You will either have a false God or the true God. You'll either have a God of Death and disaster or a God of life. You either have another God or you have the liberating God, our Lord, who brought his people long ago out of slavery and bondage and who through his Son, Jesus Christ, is still taking people out of slavery and the bondage of sin. You now Jesus Christ our savior and redeemer comes to us today and he invites us. He invites us every Sunday morning. In those words love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength. This he says. Is where the real GPS to life, hope and glory begins and ends. Do you agree? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web